Well, good morning. Welcome to Collective Church. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the lead pastors. We're glad that you are with us. We're starting a new series as we start 2022 called The Way of Jesus. And we're going to be working through the Gospel of Luke together. As we start a new year, we want to focus our eyes yet again on Jesus. Before we do, before we dig into it, let's pray. God, I pray that in these moments that you would be the one that speaks. God, that you would invade this space and invade our personal space. We give you permission to move and speak and draw us closer. Would you illuminate your word? You promise that your word will not return void. And so as we focus our eyes on your word and the word as we see Jesus. God, would you change us? Use us. I need you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't, I don't know how much attention you pay to, to some of the cultural myths that we have, but it's been something that increasingly I've been, I've been watching. And I'm not talking about like the myths we believe, like Greek mythology. I mean, the false beliefs that we kind of settle into, I think this is real even though it isn't. One of the myths that we believe from a cultural perspective is that we are always progressing, that we're advancing to some sort of utopia, and when we advance to that, that will save us. This is the ultimate goal, that humanity would move towards some better future that we would create ourselves. And when it comes to technology, we've progressed. Like, we have more access to technology than we've ever had before. And when it comes to money, for the most part, there has been lots of progression in the West where people tend to have more money than they've had before, but where we see this sense of progress break down is in people's mental health, in people's state of happiness. There, there's a bunch of research that say we are at the lowest point of happiness that, that since the 60s, we've never been this unhappy as a culture. Now, yeah, obviously, COVID has played a part in that, but that was not just from COVID. That was long before. And it's interesting for all the technology we have, all the connection that we have, we're increasingly disconnected. People have fewer and fewer close relationships. They have fewer people that they can actually trust. And so this myth of progress as if we're moving towards this better future and we're doing all these things, it seems to be falling flat. People are less resilient than ever before. People people struggle in a different way than ever before. We have a mental health epidemic. People are not thriving. And so what we see is this man-made system that is promising so much and yet delivering very little. Promises to bring us this sense of utopia. Promises to offer all these things. It over-promises and under-delivers. I would submit to you that we are people desperately in need of a Savior. That we need to be saved. That we're looking for salvation. And the truth is that all of us, whether we believe in Jesus or not, we have a story of what would save us. We have things in our life that we think will save us. If I just have enough money, that will save me from from my fears and from anything that might happen. If I just do this, then that will save me. We all have a narrative that we believe 
will save us. We all have something that we look to that will save us. We live in a culture that is increasingly marked by what's called secularism. And secularism is just a worldview that exists without God at the center. It's believing that everything exists and God is not a part of any of it. And secularism has a proposal of what will save us. It tells us some, gives us some promises. This is what salvation looks like in secularism. Mark Sayers says it like this, Secular salvation promises that you can find true meaning by exercising your ultimate freedom and doing exactly what you want whenever you want. At a core level, secular salvation says that in order to be saved, you simply need to discover or rediscover your truest self your inner child, your innermost self, if you can just find that, then you will find safety and salvation. And instead of surrendering to the way of Jesus, this model is simply about surrendering to your own way of life, my own way through everything, my own, my own perspective. I become my own functional savior, Ultimately, I am the bringer of my own salvation, but this breaks down. Hopefully, we all have some level of self-awareness to go, I'm not that special or perfect, and I could rediscover all I want to rediscover about who I am, and I'm only more aware of my inadequacy and my brokenness. But the problem is we might even know that, even intellectually. Okay, so salvation isn't just in discovering who I am, but discovering Jesus, and yet we don't pay attention to how it it kind of weasels its way into our life. There are things that we know, and then there are the things that become functional ideas, that we go, yeah, I know that's not quite true, but I kind of live like it's true, and this becomes one of those things. And we are confronted and should be confronted with, is this my way or is this Jesus's way? Does this represent Jesus or not? In contrast to the secular story of salvation, Jesus comes to offer an alternative. He comes to offer a new way of life, a completely different way of life. If you've ever been in church, maybe you've heard the word discipleship. And increasingly, I've heard some people that are talking about discipleship and going, rather than thinking discipleship, it might be more helpful when looking at the original language to actually think apprenticeship. Now, I just want you to consider apprenticeship for a moment. If you're thinking about uh, being apprenticed, maybe you work in trades or maybe you don't, but, but think about what that process looks like. It's not like you go to school for four years and hopefully you can do what you learn to do. Apprenticeship is way more active. It's way more present. It's a different way of living. Apprenticeship means training under a master, being willing to submit ourselves under someone that knows more than we do, that has proven that they live in a different way than us and becoming like them. Apprenticeship is an active pursuit. It's an active pursuit of learning and doing. It's not just about concepts, it's about applying them. It's not just about, I learn a little bit more from a Christian perspective, I learned some more theology. It's also, also about orthopraxy. I take what I know and I apply it to my life. I do what I'm learning. 
The beautiful thing, if you look at apprenticeship just in our culture, is this application of what you're learning. And you're trying stuff. And if you were to talk to Eric Wellman, who's, who's in the production room, about the apprentices that he has as an electrician, they don't always get it right. They don't come fully formed. They don't show up and go, oh man, these apprentices, I don't even have to do anything. No, they need lots of work. And so if we see ourselves in that light, it changes our perspective. And so we come to Jesus to be apprenticed. To what? Apprenticed to his way of life. I mentioned it a, a few weeks ago that if you actually look at the Bible, there, it doesn't really talk about Christians identifying themselves as Christians. Instead, it defines them as followers of the way. The way of life. The way of Jesus. And so the invitation for us as Christians, as we surrender our life to him, is to apprentice under Jesus, our master, our rabbi, in his way of life. And this is what we want to do as a church in this next season. We want to make sure that our thoughts and our ideas and our actions and our behaviors all are in line and under this way of Jesus. And one of the things that if you're thinking, again, through the lens of apprenticeship, you're not a, an apprentice because you show up once a week. You're an apprentice when every single day you're willing to surrender your day and learn and go, teach me what you want to teach me. I'll, I'll do what you ask me to do. And so one of the things that we're doing, and we've done it before, is we have a journal. If you go to collectivechurch.ca, you can find the journal. And it will allow us as a community to actually work through Luke verse by verse together. It's this reminder that you are not coming, so if you're part of Collective, you're not coming to be apprenticed under Tyler, you're coming to be apprenticed under Jesus, and Tyler gets to be a part of that. You have an active role in that. And so if you think that you can apprentice under Jesus by showing up once a week, you miss out on some beautiful opportunities through the week for God to surprise you and instruct you and encourage you and challenge you and cause you to actually do what you're learning. And so we have this journal so you can work through it, hear from God, engage with scripture meaningfully through your week. But I want to remind you that in every single moment of every single day as Christians, we get to choose my way or his way. We get to choose the way of Jesus or, in my case, the way of Tyler. And sometimes those line up. Lots of times they do not. There are things that I go, I want to do this. And, and Jesus goes, yeah, that's nice. Uh, I actually want better for you. And you're like, I, I don't want that. <laughs> I want my way. And so we're faced always with this constant choice. Do I choose my way or Jesus's way? And the, the thing that we want to do as a community is we want to courageously look at areas where we're finding ourselves following our way instead of his way. That, it's courageous because it, it's not an easy thing to be confronted by stuff in your life that you go, Jesus points out stuff, and you're like, oh, man, I don't want to do that. I don't want to deal with that. That's really hurtful, or that's hard, or that's, that's tough, or that's going to cost me, all those things. And so it's courageous as we are willing to say to God, whatever you want to do, like I'm actually willing to apprentice under you, 
You're the master, not me. Teach me. Tell me. Show me. What do I need to do? There are areas in all of our lives where we find ourselves divided. If we're apprenticed to the way of Jesus and we're moving in that direction, there are times that we find ourselves moving in a different direction. And just, like, we kind of understand theoretically what that looks like to be divided, but imagine you had set out to go to Toronto. You're going, I'm going to go to Toronto. I'm going to go drive to Toronto. And so you set off by driving to Windsor. But I'm going to go to Toronto. I'm committed. I'm going to get to Toronto. I'm going I'm to make this. And then you just start driving the other way. It would make no sense, right? Like you'd be going, okay, that's a really stupid illustration. The problem is if you look at our lives, myself included, that's how I operate. I want to follow Jesus. So I'm going to do it my way. And he goes, listen, follow my way. And you go, yeah, that sounds great. But I'm going to, I'm going to go this way first. He goes, so you're going to backtrack to go forward. Yeah. Or we find areas in our lives where we are divided in our focus. That's why it's important that we think of it as the way of Jesus, this way of life, because it's not just a, a part or a compartment. It is an act of all of our life moving in a direction, an every single day invitation to choose. As we follow the way of Jesus, the Bible becomes our, our central focal point. It's where we see Jesus. It's where we are clearly, we allow ourselves to see him more clearly in ways that maybe we have forgotten. Especially when we look at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it's split up into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you ever are at a hotel and you see a Gideon's Bible, typically that's the New Testament. And so it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four accounts of the life of of Jesus. And it's important for us, and it's why we're doing it with Luke, to go back to look at the life of Jesus, because what happens is our view of Jesus gets formed by things. It gets formed by culture or preferences. Like, we go, for example, I just want Jesus to be nice all the time. He's just a really nice guy. But what do you do with the fact that he flips tables and he knits a, a whip to whip people? You're like, well, I don't like that part. It's important that we are always going back to the Bible and going back to the accounts of Jesus to re-examine, have I made Jesus in my image or am I allowing him to be made in his? And so we're going to work through verse by verse through Gospel of Luke. And one of the things that I want to make sure you know, this today will be a little bit different because it's a little bit more overarching. But one of the overarching themes of Luke it colors everything that we see is this theme of salvation. It's why I talked earlier about the cultural view of salvation, what saves us. For Luke, this is a central part that we need to understand when we're exploring Jesus, when we're refocusing our eyes on Jesus, this message of salvation. Now, the book of Luke is written by someone named Luke. It's written by someone named Luke. And we learned some things about Luke. We, knew, we know some things about Luke, but he provides his outlook and perspective on Jesus. And he sets out on writing this account of Jesus. And so in Luke 1, verse 1 to 4, it says this, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness report circulating among us from the early disciples. 
Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Luke is a physician, so when Luke writes, he brings precision. He, he, there's no wasted effort. When he writes something, he's not just writing it to write it. He's writing it because there is a purpose and it's important. And he, as he carefully investigates, he's making sure what he shares is what we need to know. He's not flippant. He's not prone to exaggeration. We see this even in the first section. In verse 3, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you. In an area and a time where uh, words like fake news are in the cultural lexicon, this should be important to us. Luke is setting out to write an accurate representation of what happened, an accurate account. He wasn't telling a tale. He's not trying to dazzle us with some made-up story. He's trying to tell things like they are. He's making sure that we see things clearly, that we actually know that this is true. He was intent on carefully investing in it. Maybe you don't know, but um, most scholars believe that Luke was written within 40 years of the events that happened. Okay, so think about that. Because sometimes we're, we struggle. We're like, I don't know, was it like hundreds of years later where they're assuming some things and they're hearing stories? No, 40 years. So think. And I, I wrote first 1980, which is not 40 years ago, and then 1981, forgetting it's 2022. 1982. Okay, if you were alive in 1982, there's a couple people in the room that were alive in 1982. If you were alive in 1982, if, if someone talks to someone else who was alive in 1982, do you trust them? Do you go, well, that was, that's ancient history. So for, that's a really long time ago. No, you're like, that's not that long ago. This was fresh. This was not where even Luke is relying on people who wrote other people who wrote and other people, and like a game of telephone. No, this is direct. This is not even like, well, there are a bunch of old, addled people sharing their perspective. No, this was still fresh. Within 40 years of everything that had happened, Luke is writing this account. And he didn't just rely on what he'd heard. He went directly to eyewitnesses. He went directly to people. And notice, eyewitnesses, not eyewitness. He went to multiple people, and what he discovered is all of them could point to the same story. Again, an accurate account of what had happened. And why did he do this? He tells us in verse 4, so you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. Now think about the application and implication for us today, those of us that are, that are Jesus followers. We investigate Luke's investigation so that we can know what we were taught is true, so that we know that it is accurate. We have access to Luke's gospel or the good news of Jesus according to Luke so that we can reorient and focus our eyes on what is true. And the invitation for us as we do so is, do I believe it? Do I believe that it's true? Do I believe that I need to realign and refocus myself on what I see? Do I really believe it? I had the privilege of officiating my cousin's wedding a couple of summers ago. And I had someone came up to, I had a couple that came up to me and they're like, hey, uh, you don't look like a pastor. Which I, I, 
I hear that every once in a while. I'm like, I don't know what you mean. Like, I don't know if that's supposed to be a compliment. I don't know. Or it's like, wow, you don't look like a pastor at all. And so I was like, yeah, thanks. <laughs> and they're like, okay, so, so like, do you believe this stuff? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. They're like, all of it? <laughs> like, yeah, all of it. They're like, even the miracles? I'm like, yeah, I believe in the miracles. Okay, just in case anyone is unclear, we believe in the miracles. Our whole faith is, is all, everything is surrounded by one ultimate miracle. Jesus died on a cross, rose again, and conquered death. Resurrection is a miracle. Resurrection is a, is a significant miracle that everything is built around. All of what we believe is on that. We believe that there are all sorts of eyewitnesses that saw Jesus dead and then saw him alive. And people tried to make sense of it. And the only thing that makes sense is that he rose again by the power of God. That's what our faith is built on. And we are confronted at times of reading scripture through the lens of someone in the 21st century that goes, I don't know about some of that miracle stuff. I, I saw uh, an interview that Matthew McConaughey did, and he's talking about faith, and he's like, man, I love Jesus' teaching, but like the miracles, I just don't know what to do with. And you're like, I hate to break it to you, Matthew McConaughey, or anyone else. We don't get to choose in the Bible what we want to listen to and go, ah. <laughs> like if you take out miracles from the entire New Testament, you lose a significant amount of Jesus and even when you look at Luke, so I want you to remember this. So Luke is a physician. He's not trying to exaggerate. He's not trying to present some crazy, fanciful story. Luke, even in chapter 1, does not shy away from miracles. He's carefully investigated. He's heard all sorts of eyewitness accounts. And he doesn't just go, ah, you know, they probably won't believe that. And so he's going, no, this is so clear that you need to know this happened. This is central to the story. This is important that we understand. Even when we look at Luke 1 as a whole in the first chapter, we have angels coming to Mary, who is Jesus's mom, to let her know that she will give birth and she's a virgin. This is a miracle. This is not like Mary and Joseph had an oops baby and they went, who's the dad? God. This is a miraculous thing where an angel showed up. And, and you notice this with angels where people are like, oh, and angels go, don't be afraid. An angel showed up to Mary and said, this is going to happen. This is a miracle. And then we find in Luke 1 an angel coming face to face with someone named Zechariah, who is a Jewish priest. And there was a, fa a family connection. Zechariah was married to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth and Mary were cousins. And so an angel shows up to Zechariah and says, um, I know you're old, like really old, like dusty old, like you smell weird old. Old. I know you're old. And I know you've been praying for a long time, God, please give us a kid. And you have long since given up. So I just want you to know God has heard your prayers and you're going to have a kid. Miracle. How does Zechariah respond? Probably exactly how we would. He's like, I, I can't believe that. Like, even though he comes face to face with an angel, he's like, I, I don't know how that can happen. Have you ever had that? You have something that it's been so long, and honestly, your hope has been deferred for so long that you're like, 
I don't even see a way forward. The angel is face to face with him saying, a miracle is about to happen in your life. And he goes, I don't know. And so an angel goes, because you don't believe, you're not going to be able to speak until your baby's born. Another miracle. Which would be brutal. <laughs> you're just silent. Maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe Elizabeth loved it. She was like, finally, Zechariah just shuts up. This will be great. And so he doesn't talk at all until his baby is born. John is born. John, who we learn, becomes John the Baptist. Another miracle happens where, where suddenly the, John is born and Zechariah can speak. Zechariah is able to speak and his first inclination, his first words are praise to God. He praises God. And in verse 67, then his father Zechariah, John's father Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty savior from the royal line of his servant, David. Just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago, now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sin. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. This prophecy, this is God speaking through Zechariah, is filled with gold. You could study this and there's so many layers of nuance, but I want to hit a few things when I was saying that one of the central themes of Luke is salvation. Some of the things that point us in that direction. We see this focus on salvation even here. Verse 69, he has sent us a mighty savior from the royal line of his servant David. Just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago, now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. Long ago, God promised it. And with the arrival of Jesus, the promise is fulfilled. He is the Savior that everyone has been looking for. Jesus represents the salvation that everyone continues to look for. And he reminds, Zechariah reminds the people around and he reminds us through Luke that because of Jesus, we will be saved from our enemies. Now, for Zechariah at that time, there's the Jewish people that had been under an occupying and oppressive force, the Romans. And so even as he's saying that, he's going, he's going to rescue us from our enemies. He had a picture in his mind of who his enemies were. They were people. And I think that's so often true for us when we even see this, okay, Jesus will rescue us from our enemies. And you're like, I know them. But is that what he's talking about? No. Even for the Israelites at that point, the Jewish people, they misunderstood. They had an assumption of what that meant, but it, it's so much different. This is not about human enemies. 
This is not that Jesus comes to to stop human enemies and to remind them of their place. No, this is about something so much greater than that. This is about being saved from the grip that evil and death has on us, from enemies that are beyond what we see, that the death and grip that, that, or the death and evil that grip our present and our past and our future. These are the enemies that Jesus has come to overthrow. He's come to save us from our enemies. Inspired by God, Zechariah says this about his son John. You will tell people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Salvation is found through the forgiveness of our sins. Now this supposes a few things. It supposes that we do in fact sin. And sin is any time that we don't measure up to perfection. I I hope, even if we're a little bit allergic to the word sin, that none of us would try to pretend that we're perfect. I mean, if you're not sure and you think you're perfect, ask someone who knows you well. Hopefully, lovingly, they'll go, I don't think that's true. We all of us have sin in our life. All of us have areas where we miss the mark. And all of us, if we have sin, need forgiveness. Forgiveness for that. Our salvation comes from the forgiveness of our sins. This is, this little verse that we see this idea echoed throughout all of New Testament stands in direct opposition to cultural narratives. The idea that we have sin, the idea that all of us have sin stands in opposition because one of the things that is believed generally is um, we're not really that bad and the real only sin is not being true to ourselves. If I'm true to myself, then I am good. But if I'm not true to myself, then I am sinful. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not what Zechariah is speaking about. In fact, if we actually look directly at the the words of Jesus found in Matthew, we'll see his message about what sin looks like and what it looks like when we're going, "I, I just need to be completely true to myself. If that's the lie that we believe, and culturally it is, what does Jesus say? He says in Matthew 10, 38 to 39, if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. You're like, oh man, that's a little harsh. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Jesus tells us, for those of us that would follow him, that they must be willing to give up their whole lives. They must be willing to let go of their plans and their preferences and their agendas and even their dreams for his. To go, I'm giving my life up for you, we put to death our own way of living. Ultimately, we need to be willing to submit ourselves to this way of Jesus, willing to apprentice under him and walk with him. Walk the difficult way of Jesus to the end of our life. And even in this, and I had never really, I'd never really understand this, where it says, if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. It's important that you know that this speaks to crucifixion, obviously with the cross, and 
in the Roman times, they'd use crucifixion where someone would go up on the cross and they'd suffocate. They'd have nails in their hands and their feet and they'd suffocate. If you pick up your cross, this idea of picking up your cross, at that time was an admission of guilt. If you walked with your cross, you were saying, I did it. I did it. I sinned and I deserve punishment. This is important for us to to recognize that Jesus is saying that to us. Saying when you take up your cross as Jesus invites, we're acknowledging our sin and our brokenness. They're saying, yeah, I'm broken. I'm imperfect. I have sin. I'm separated from you. We die to ourselves and instead live for him. We choose his way of life. We die to our old way of life, our own way of life, and instead follow him. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is he gives us a choice. He invites us, do you want to wholly follow me or not? Do you want to give me all of you or not? Do you want to love me more than anything in the world or not? He's not going to force us to do anything. But if we labor under the illusion that Jesus wants half of us, we are missing out. He's not inviting us to add him as an option to our life. And we have a worldview that we create that Jesus is maybe a part. He's inviting us to apprentice under the way of the master, the way of Jesus, and give everything to us. To take up our cross, to die to our old selves, to live with him and through him and his way of life. And every single day is an invitation. If we'll actually invite Jesus to show us, he will. He'll show us places that we're divided. He'll show us places where we're settling for our own way. He'll show us places where we are doing our own thing. And in that moment, every single time it happens, we have the opportunity. Do I want to pick up my cross or leave it? Do I want to die to myself there? Do I want to give that away and say, I don't want my will and my way. I want your way in every area or not. And we find ourselves, I find myself myself going, I want to give you all of me. And Jesus goes, perfect, now give me that. And you go, can I give that to you later? I don't know if I, I, like, don't you know what this will cost? Don't you know what this will mean? He goes, yeah, all of you, pick up your cross, die to yourself. This is the invitation for us as followers of Jesus, as apprentices under the way of Jesus. We find salvation in apprenticeship to Jesus' way of life and total surrender to him as our Savior and our Lord. This is what salvation looks like for those of us that are Jesus followers. Salvation looks like total surrender to his way of life, total apprenticeship to him as master, trusting that he is our Savior and he is our Lord, that his way of life is better, that all the things we think we know and want to do, that we surrender it to him and he shows us how to actually find life. This is the invitation for us. And so in Luke, Zechariah is prophesying about Jesus and his son, John, and reminding us that John is making a way for the ultimate way, that he's preparing things and preparing people to acknowledge 
our own brokenness and sin. We need a Savior, and we have access to one. His name is Jesus. And Luke tells us in uh, verse 78, this is Zechariah saying, because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide us to the path of peace. All of it, taking up our cross, dying to ourselves, surrendering to him as our savior, is an act and reminder of God's tender mercy, that he doesn't leave us on our own in the darkness to our own devices, that though we're prone to the way of death, that he gives us an invitation to find the way of life. This invitation to follow the path of peace found in Jesus, complete trust in him. But the truth is that becoming an apprentice of Jesus only begins when we're willing to acknowledge our sin and our brokenness. It only begins when we're willing to acknowledge our need for a savior. Jesus does not represent a genie. He doesn't represent a set of moral ideas or an add-on to some of the other things we believe. He offers a complete alternative way of life. He invites us as Christians every single day to give up our life to embrace his. He invites us to submit daily to living his way of life, apprenticeship to him. What does apprenticeship look, look like? I, I was reading from Dallas Willard and uh, John Mark Homer, and, and they say it like this, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he did. That's what it looks like. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he did. What do we want to do in this series? We want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he did. If all of us were doing that, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he did, it would change everything around us. And like apprentices, apprentices, we would begin to look more and more like our master. What would it look like to go on this adventure with us through Luke? Not just to show up on a Sunday and listen, but actually get the journal and go, God, where are you trying to apprentice me? Where are you trying to shape me to your will, your way, your time? What are you trying to do? What would it look like for us to actually confront the lies that we believe, the beliefs we have around salvation or what good, a good life looks like, and instead going, the life of Jesus and a Jesus follower is cruciform. That is, that it is it is crucified. I die to myself to pick up yours, and I want to surrender any time that I put my salvation and treat anything else like it is my Savior. I want to invite you, even as you read Luke 1 and beyond, to boldly ask God to show you areas where he wants to work, and then courageously step into those. And don't do it by yourself. Do it with other people. Make sure people know this is what I'm sensing God is saying, and we do it together. I want to encourage you, all of you, whether you're watching online or in person, to take a step. Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus and do what he did. Let's pray. God, pray that you would save us from our false saviors. Jesus, I pray that you would give us wisdom to, to see where we are buying into lies or false narratives. God, give us perspective on you I pray that as we read Luke together, in a, unlike any time in each of our history, that you would speak to us in a way that, that does not make sense and draws us 
closer. I pray that your words would come to life, would illuminate the areas of darkness in our life and illuminate our path. God, help us to be apprentices to the way of Jesus. God, speak to us. Move in power in 2022 in each one of us. Redeem and restore us. God, we give it all to you and we trust you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.